Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight, and our topic is Out of Egypt. Uh, I want to wish everybody a happy new year, and uh, thanks for joining us. And out of Egypt, the, the, there are many biblical stories that have to do with going out of Egypt. And I'm particularly thinking of it this time of year because uh, in the Lord's childhood, he went down to Egypt and then came out of Egypt. And this echoed uh, stories. Abram went down to Egypt and came back. All the children of Israel went down to Egypt. They came back. Uh, what is so great about Egypt that you have to go there? And then what is so bad about it that you have to leave? You know, it's an odd sort of story. So that's what we're going to be uh, exploring tonight. So would you join me for an opening prayer, good friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us together in your name. You are the word made flesh. We pray for your presence among us as we seek to understand the pages of your word. Amen. Thank you all. It's very nice to see people who are here in the flesh tonight. Uh, we're having a very cold night on the east coast of the U.S. right here. And uh, so it's great to see everybody all bundled up in your, your seats. And um, so let's dive right into this because we have a few different scriptures that we want to look at and then try to figure out what is going, what is this Egypt that you have to go to and then you have to leave? What, what is that? Uh, let's start all the way at the left, as every, where everything starts in Genesis. And let's look at Genesis chapter 12. And uh, there's this person we're introduced to named Abram, who's called, he starts out in Ur of the Chaldees, and he gets called to come around the Fertile Crescent and comes down into, uh, into the land of Canaan. And then uh, he journeys going on still toward the south. And in verse 10, what happens? Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. Aha. Uh -huh. So what was great about Egypt for Abram was they had food. Uh, he had run out of food where he was, and so Egypt was suddenly more attractive. And... Uh, uh, later on, look at chapter 13, verse 1. Then Abram went up from Egypt. There he goes. <laughs> he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. And what was his condition at that time, would you say, dear reader? Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Aha. Uh -huh. It seems like he had been enriched by being there. So he not only got food, but he went there and he got livestock, silver, and gold, and then came back up out of Egypt and settled in the, in the Holy Land. All right, and uh, let's look at Genesis chapter 47. <coughs> we'll look at verses 29 and 30, um, because Abram had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob, who was then became Israel, re renamed Israel, and uh, he was the father of the children of Israel. And uh, this is the end of Jacob's life in verses 29 and 30. He makes a request. And by the way, what had happened during that time, is very important to mention, is that uh, there had been more famine and in the land, and all the children of Israel had gone down to Egypt in order to eat. Again, there was a famine in the land. And so they all lived there, and Jacob lived the rest of his life there. And, uh, and his son Joseph had become second in command in the whole uh, nation of Egypt. So look at verse 29 there. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt. Don't bury me. What an interesting... He's about to die and he's in Egypt. 
Uh, but he says, don't bury me here in Egypt. Where, where does he want to be buried? But let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Ah, so his, his father and his grandfather were buried in the Holy Land, which was northeast of Egypt. And he said, you, carry, you know, he knows he's going to die there, but he wants to be carried out, his remains to be carried out of Egypt and be buried where the, the, his ancestors were. Okay. And look at chapter 49, verses 29 and 30. Exactly two chapters later. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, mm. in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. And who was there? There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. That was his, one of his wives. So Abram and Sarah were there, Rebekah and Isaac and Leah was there. So he wanted to be buried with the rest of them. And so in chapter 50, so they're all in Egypt and Joseph is very highly respected. He was given tremendous authority by the Pharaoh of that time. And uh, look in verse 5, after uh, Jacob died, what does he tell the Pharaoh? My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Mm. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. Yeah, so Joseph says, I want to take the journey out of Egypt. I want to go up to the Holy Land and bury him. So what did Pharaoh say? Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him and went... With him, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Oh. Wow. As well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. Okay, go on. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Huh. So Joseph said, I want to go up you know, to bury my father where he wished to be buried back in the Holy Land. And the Egyptians all said, hey, we're coming with you. And so they all had a great <laughs> big entourage and a huge group went up there. They'd all been grieving uh, the death of Jacob and uh, they all went up there together. So there was this interesting little pre-exodus of Joseph and all the Egyptians going up to the Holy Land, but then coming back again. Now in Exodus chapter 1, which comes immediately to the right there, um, things start to go not so well. Look at, uh, look at verse 7 and look at verse 8 there in that first chapter of Exodus. Oops, 7 and 8. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Oh, and I'm sorry, there was something in chapter f uh, else in chapter 50 that I meant to read. Uh, if you can turn back real quickly, good friends. Uh, what did Joseph say as he was dying in verse 24 of Genesis 50? And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land. The land of Egypt. To the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Okay. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Oh, hmm. His dad said kind of the same thing. So his dad said, I really want you to bury my remains up in the Holy Land. And Joseph said, sure. And they all went and they did it. And then when Joseph was dying, he said, I want you to take my bones with you, not tomorrow and not the next day, but eventually when you leave this place, because I know you're going to leave someday. And, uh, and so Joseph died. And then... So the people grew and grew and grew, and years went by, and the land was filled with them, as we just read in Exodus 1, verse 7. And what happened in verse 8? Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Ah, 
So you see, this is part of how Egypt changes, that at one time Egypt is very friendly, and it's a great place to go, and you go there and you get enriched, and look at what happened to the people. They all grew and increased and everything, and Abram got wealthy down there. But here comes a king over mm -hmm. Egypt who doesn't know Joseph mm -hmm. and doesn't care in the same way, and they enslave the people. Look at verse 11. They set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and, and they built... What does that say there at the end of verse 11? They built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. Mm. And the old King James says treasure cities. So they, they're building entire cities with all this, this labor of, of the children of Israel. And the more they afflicted them in verse 12, the more they multiplied and grew. And so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve and they made their lives very hard with this bondage. And Pharaoh even got to the point where he charged everybody in verse 22 there that every son who is born should be cast into the river, but the daughters can live. And so in chapter 2, uh, this couple has a son, and he should be killed and thrown in the river, but she hid him for three months, and then she put him in an ark of the bulrushes. And this is still down in Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. And what happens in verse 5 there? Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. So she claims the boy as her own, but uses the birth mother as a nurse, uh, and has, uh, has his own mother nurse him, but Pharaoh's going to raise him as her own. And so look at verse 10. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Her son. So Moses became, wow, so the children of Israel really, they're enslaved, and yet one of them is now part of the royal family. Mm -hmm. In effect, he's been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And his name is Moses because he was drawn out of the water. Okay. And um, then Moses sees this episode. You may remember we're flashing through all kinds of history here. But he sees uh, a Hebrew and Egyptian fighting and Moses kills the Egyptian. So even though he's been raised as an Egyptian himself, he's still his loyalty is still uh, with the children of Israel. And uh, then the next day he sees two Hebrews fighting each other and one of them says, you're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian. And Moses was terrified. And so look in verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. Oh, so he went up out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. So Moses left Egypt and did that same journey that so many other people had done. He went out of Egypt. And uh, interestingly, he sits down by this well, and uh, these young women come and see him. And look in verse 19. What do they say to their father? They said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. Huh. So Moses kind of identifies himself as a Hebrew. He's, he's one of the children of Israel. But when he goes up to the Holy Land, he's considered an Egyptian. Like he must mm. obviously, the way he talks, the way he looks, mm. that's an Egyptian right there, if I ever saw one. Uh, he's an Egyptian. So he's interesting sort of bridge figure, isn't he? And uh, Moses, in verse 21, he goes to live with this person, and he marries his daughter Zipporah, and verse 22. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. I've been a stranger in a foreign land. Or in the wonderful language of the old King James, I've been a stranger in a strange land. Now, which, which land was he a stranger in? Was he a stranger in Egypt? Or was that his home and he was a stranger in the, in the Holy Land, you know, when he left Egypt? I don't even know which he's, he's referring to. But uh, the children of Israel are dying and suffering and they want to get out of there and so on. Look at chapter 3, because Moses goes out by this burning bush and everything and God calls to him and look at verses 
10 to 12 there. What does God say to Moses about his call? Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Out of Egypt. That's his job. Bring them out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Oh, I can't really think of anybody better. He's part of the Egyptian royal family. I mean, but anyway, <laughs> go on. So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... Not if. When. When you brought the people out of Egypt... You shall serve God on this mountain. Mm. Okay, and then this whole series of plagues happens because Moses keeps going in and saying, let my people go, and Pharaoh doesn't want to release them. And uh, look at chapter 12... Verses 40 and 41. 12, 40 and 41. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. Wow, okay. That was rather longer than Abram stayed there. It was 430 years. In fact, interestingly, if you look at the timing and the way it's laid out in the story, the 430 years is not from the time that uh, Joseph's father came down to Israel, uh, go, came down to Egypt and lived there in the land of Goshen. It goes all the way back to Abram's trip down. The 430 years is since Abram went there. Mm -hmm. So that whole thing is considered to be time spent in Egypt, even though they've been going back and forth and everything. Uh, verse 41. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day. The same day. <laughs> it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Mm. Okay, there they went on the very same day. Okay, chapter 13, verse 3. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand... Aha, now look at what Egypt has become. It's become the house, house of bondage, bondage. right? Mm -hmm. It used to be a wonderful, welcoming place of food and wealth and so on. Uh, but it became the house of bondage. Go on. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Hmm. On this, on this day you are going out in the month Abib. The month Abib which is the first month of their oh, yes. sacred calendar. And then they're told in the next uh, verse there that when they get to that land flowing with milk and honey, they will keep in that same month, they will keep this celebration, which is the Passover. Um, okay, chapter 14, we're tearing through all this. Uh, now, even though the people were in terrible bondage and cried to get out of there, uh, they are unhappy. And look at what they say in chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Yes. Why are you taking us out of Egypt? <laughs> Go on. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? <laughs> for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Yes, we love it in Egypt, and we hate leaving. And um, <laughs> look at Exodus chapter 17, verse 3. There's another little moment of people complaining on their way out of Egypt. <laughs> And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Yes, why would you do that, you nasty person? Uh, turn to the right and go through Leviticus to Numbers. I want to get to Numbers chapter 11. And we have another passage in which the children of Israel, for some reason, are unhappy. <laughs> Uh, verses 4 and following there. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. Aha! Or in the grand language of the old King James, they fell a-lusting. <laughs> yes. Okay. 
So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? And what were they thinking about at that time, dear reader? We remember the fish which we ate freely oh, in Egypt. Oh, you remember the fish? Oh. <laughs> the cucumbers. Oh, the cucumbers. The melons. The melons. The leeks. The oh. onions and the garlic. Oh, but now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. <laughs> Nicely read, dear reader. That was, that was good. That was very good. Uh, <laughs> so they weren't very happy with this exodus from Egypt, were they? And in Numbers chapter 20, verse 5, for some reason the children of Israel are complaining again. 20 verse 5. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt? And it's always Moses' fault. <laughs> <laughs> to bring us to this evil place. Ah, you see, Egypt was a good place. This is an evil place. What are you doing to us? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. You remember grain and figs and vines and <laughs> pomegranates? <laughs> no, mm. Nor is there any water to drink. Yes, that's sort of a drawback. That's right. <laughs> and uh, have a look at Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, again, to try to demonstrate that the journey out of Egypt wasn't always happy for these people. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Yes. They're too tired and exhausted to even list the cucumbers or the melons or anything. They just say, there's no bread, there's no water, and we hate this stuff we have to eat. Okay, good. And how about 22, verse 11... This is interesting that Balaam comes and listen to this description of how the children of Israel look to this person, Balaam, who's come. They're very worried about the children of Israel coming up through the wilderness. And what does uh, Balaam say? Uh, this is what actually the king of Moab said to Balaam. <clears throat> look, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Mm. So this people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Mm. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. I just wanted to read that because of the sense of, from another, so they're complaining all the way, it seems like. But uh, from another standpoint, they're sort of this terrifying force. They're, they're covering the earth. Again, this sense that there was this great multiplication that happened in Egypt. Mm -hmm. What does it all mean? Okay, turn to the right and get to Deuteronomy, and let's go to chapter 4. Mm. Egypt is a nice hot place. Just <laughs> worth thinking about tonight, isn't it, friend? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. How is Egypt described there? So it's been described as a house of bondage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace. What's the iron furnace? Out of Egypt. Oh, Egypt is an... It's so hot. <coughs> it's an iron furnace. Interesting. Hmm. Okay, go on. To be his people, an inheritance, as you are this day. Yes, an iron furnace. Isn't that interesting? Um, that's, how, that's how Egypt is described. So, so what does Egypt mean? And look in that same chapter. Um, oh, look at verse 37. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power. Yes, that's right. And he's going to drive out nations who are greater and mightier than you are uh, because he's God and there is no other. Good. And in chapter 6, verse 20, they're told what to tell their children about this event. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments mm. which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, mm. and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. This is the, the first thing you're supposed to tell your, your children, mm. that, that we got out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. The Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. 
And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe, against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. Mm. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. There you go. That he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. All right. So that's what you're to tell them. The main story mm-hmm. is we're, we're the people who the Lord brought out of Egypt. Look at Deuteronomy 16 because we have instructions here again about the Passover and why they would keep the Passover when they kept it. Right at the beginning? Yes, first verse, sorry. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. By night. And look in verse 6. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, Hmm. there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. Yeah, so this Passover, as you know very well, friends, was a celebration, and it was very specific. You're supposed to do it at the same time of year, same time of day. Uh, This getting out of Egypt was a very, very important thing, wasn't it? Uh, Look at chapter 25. It caught my eye here. Uh, Just starting at verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. These were their enemies, the Amalekites. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, Mm. when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Mm. So they were in this vulnerable state going through the wilderness and the Amalekites were picking them off from the back, the ones who were having the most trouble. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Okay, now let's take a quick look, shall we? Oh, look and turn to the right and you get to the book of Joshua. One little dotting of an I and crossing of a T is in Joshua chapter 24. So Joshua is the whole story of Joshua and how he took over for Moses leading the children of Israel. And then at the very end of the book in chapter 24, verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Yes, and if you see up in verse 29, Joshua died. So this is the end of the story. Joshua died. He got buried on Mount Ephraim. And then verse 32, randomly out of nowhere. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor. So they did what they said they were going to do. It took that whole other journey, and it's just this little footnote. Oh, by the way, and Joshua died. Oh, and they buried the bones of Joseph. And then then Eliezer dies as well. And so they did bury him. They, they, way later, they brought his bones up. And um, I want to look, turn to the right, go to, through First and Second Samuel to First Kings. Uh, yeah, chapter 3, I want to look at verse 1. Hmm. So they come into the Holy Land, and their power gets sort of concentrated there. And David becomes the king, and he moves into Jerusalem and everything. And then his son Solomon takes over for him. And look at what Solomon does in verse 1 there, chapter 3. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, he married Pharaoh's daughter. Hmm. Okay. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Huh, so he married, wow, interesting. So he made an alliance, a very important alliance with, with Pharaoh. He married Pharaoh's daughter. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so 
Egypt can't be all good, but it can't be all bad either, right? Uh, and in 1 Kings chapter 8, one of my favorite passages in Scripture about that long prayer of the dedication of the temple that Solomon prays. Look at verse 46. Um, let's see. Well, look at verse 51. For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. Yeah, the iron furnace. There it is again. Egypt was the iron furnace, and the Lord brought them out of there. What does that iron furnace mean? Okay, and turn to the right. Go through First and Second Chronicles. You're going to find something rather bizarre here, friends. And then you'll see the book of Ezra, which is shortly followed by the book of Nehemiah. I want to go to Nehemiah chapter 9. There's a little known detail about the golden calf episode when they were coming up. As Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, they were down at the bottom worshiping a golden calf. And 9 verse 18, what does it say there? It says... Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt. No, they, they, they said that the golden calf was what brought them up out of Egypt. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, that's weird. Wow. Okay, good. So the golden calf is what led them out of Egypt. They were worshiping the golden calf as a thing. You know, they were complaining and complaining. Anyway, you just can't get it right. Uh, turn to the right and go to Psalm 114, if you will. You get to the Psalms pretty soon there. I want to read that. It's just eight verses long, but I'd like my reader to read that whole thing because it's this very poetical story of the, that doesn't bear hardly any relationship to the actual account that we have of how they got out of there. When Israel went out of Egypt... Uh -huh. The house of Jacob from a people of strange language. Uh -huh. Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. Hmm. The sea saw it and fled. Huh. Jordan turned back. Yeah, the sea parted for the people to go through and Jordan parted for the people to go through. Okay, who else reacted? The mountains skipped like rams. I don't remember that part. The little hills like lambs. Uh-huh. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back? O mountains, that you skipped like rams? O little hills, like lambs? Mm. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. Huh. That's a, isn't that a neat little piece of poetry about mm -hmm. the Exodus story that's uh, um, yeah, it's just quite different than the sort of more historical account that you get. All right, let's turn to the right mm. and we'll go through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And right after Daniel, you get to Hosea. And I want to go to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Because there's an important verse right there for our topic tonight. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. Hmm. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Huh. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. Bands of love. The Lord drew the people with bands of love. Okay. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. Hmm. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refused to repent. Huh. So even if they refuse to repent, they're not going to go back to Egypt the Assyrian will be their king, okay? And um, uh, look at chapter 12, verse 13, for a different account of what led them out of the land of Egypt rather than the golden calf. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, 
And by a prophet, he was preserved. Yes. Okay. So it was a prophet who led them out. That Moses was a prophet and he led them out. Okay. And turn to the right. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, <laughs> Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai. We want to go to Haggai chapter 2. If you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. And I want to go to Haggai chapter 2, <coughs> verse 5. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of <coughs> Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Yes, I just like that phrase that the, the, the Lord made a covenant with people after they came out of Egypt. And last but by no means least, turn to the right and you'll go soon into Matthew. And let's look at chapter 2 because this is kind of our topical verse, even though we're getting to it last here. Uh, chapter 2. Beginning. And uh, I'm not sure. Let's see. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's start at um, verse 12. Uh, verse, uh, verse 13. Now when they had departed... Those were the um, wise men. Okay. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt. Flee to Egypt. And stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So again, Egypt will be a place of safety. There's going to be a hazard in the land. And so Moses started out in Egypt and went up to the Holy Land, but the Lord started out in the Holy Land. But he's going to go down to Egypt, okay? When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod. And why was that? that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Mm. Yes, it was to fulfill what was said by that prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And I don't think that's the only thing after what we just read, all those verses. Uh, the Old Testament is a lot about the go to Egypt and come out story. You know, that, that uh, it was a fulfillment of all that, I think, that, mm. that he... He went down there and he came back. Uh, and so you read later in that chapter that those are dead who sought the young child's life and so he's safe. And he, but he's worried about Herod's son being on the throne. So he warns, he's warned and he turns aside to Galilee and lives in Nazareth. Okay. All right. So all that remains is just to talk about what it means. Um, okay. Um, what is this Egypt that's so good that you have to go there and it's so bad that you have to get out of there and that if you stay too long, you'll be enslaved? Uh, what is this place? What is this place that causes multiplication, you know, increase of numbers of gold and silver and flocks and so on? What is this place? Well, there are various different um, explanations of Egypt, uh, but my, uh, my father got me thinking about this topic. He preached on this recently, and he was thinking about Egypt. I want to show you a very, very humble little graphic. You remember it said that they were building cities, right? That when the children of Israel were in Egypt, they were being oh, yeah. used to build cities. And when the Lord went back, he turned aside to Nazareth. Now, the archaeological evidence is that there was about 200 people living in Nazareth, and it was just the back half of nowhere. There, there's, there's just nothing there. Uh, it's way off in the Wally Oats. Think about Egypt a little bit at that time. You just have this little graphic for those of you who can see it, and there's nothing to write home about. But you have Egypt down to the lower left, because that was down to the southwest, where you have these enormous pyramids, the Sphinx, you have the, don't you have the Temple of Karnak or whatever it is, and you have all these amazing structures, these amazing cities. It was a center of such awesome learning and power. You know, that Egyptian royal family, the power of that pharaoh, 
all the wealth that was there. They had the Nile that runs right through it. And they'd learned by studying astronomy and so on. They'd learned when the, when the Nile floods so that they could control that and control the crops. And they built up this tremendous wealth uh, at various different times. They were a great power and you read about them. Uh, and an interesting thing is that up in that delta where the Nile empties out uh, was Alexandria. And there, there was a Jewish community uh, and there was a bunch of Jews living there who didn't even know Hebrew. They knew Greek, and so the Old Testament was translated into Greek for those people in what's called the Septuagint, because it was named for the 70 people who supposedly translated it and so on. So there was, there was a Jewish community living there. I don't know. You know. This is all just speculation. But I imagine if you had Jewish people coming down from the Holy Land, they would probably go seek other Jewish, you know, maybe they know people or something, you know, maybe they're in Alexandria there or somewhere. And, uh, and there's, so there's not only knowledge of many other things, and we know from Swedenborg there was this knowledge of correspondences. And um, he says you can see it in the hieroglyphics, uh, you know, in the imagery from Egypt and so on, that there was this knowledge of correspondences. There was also knowledge of the Old Testament there. There was tremendous Scholars, I mean, the great library at Alexandria and, and, and all that, you know, there, there was tremendous learning and knowledge and power in Egypt. Israel was pretty much hick land, you know, a couple of tents, a few goats, maybe some barley, you know, but there, there was, you know, there's nothing there, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's nothing to write home about. The trade route sort of came down and went through Galilee, but it scooted right down to avoid Jerusalem and just went down to Egypt. You know, that was, the big, that was the big trade route, was to get down to Egypt. And so it's striking to think of the Lord as being born out in the boondocks and then going down as a child to this world of power and wealth and information and knowledge and scholarship, you know? Egypt was just saturated with all that. And that's where he had his early childhood. You know, we don't know how long he was there. Uh, I mean, there are various different ways of doing the dates, and some people say he was six years old, whatever. But, but he was there for a chunk of his childhood. You know, some of his early memories would be of Egypt, of these amazing structures uh, of this world of power. You know, you get that feeling from Moses, don't you, that Moses was, was there in Egypt. He was part of the Egyptian royal family, you know, raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. And then he goes off and he's a shepherd out in the back half of Midian, you know. And, and, uh, and he still looks like an Egyptian. They call him an Egyptian when he's there. And yet he's a stranger in a strange land. because It's just so foreign to go from this, you know, it's like going from, from Manhattan to the back half of some lost godforsaken place or something. You know, it, it's just a very, very different world. And so it's interesting that Jesus had to go there. And it's pure speculation, but, but uh, there's a long tradition of this kind of speculation uh, of what was Jesus, what did he learn there? You know, was his first exposure to Scripture there in Egypt? You know, was, was he learning that there? Uh, and to kind of cut to the chase, one of the things that Swedenborg says that Egypt corresponds to, and if you ever want to spend an idle week, try reading this section in the Concordance on Egypt. It's just the Swedenborg Concordance. Uh, it's just massive. Swedenborg has so much to say about Egypt. Um, one thing that Egypt means is simply knowledge. And knowledge is something that is kind of neutral, isn't it? Like it can be a blessing or it can be a curse. It can be something that starts out as a blessing and becomes a curse. And what a place to represent knowledge that was full of this amazing technical skill to build the pyramids and this amazing knowledge of correspondences, uh, this, this wealth and this power, this astronomical knowledge and so on. Uh, what a place to correspond to knowledge and what a place to start learning. You know, if Jesus went down there and started learning in Egypt, 
that was a good, you know, I mean, Alexandria, you know, was kind of, kind of the hub, of the, the navel of the world at that point in terms of scholarship and learning, and that's where he was uh, at the start of his life. And there are passages where Swedenborg says that the Lord wanted to stay, he wanted to stay in that knowledge, like it was, a, it was attractive, it was, it was appealing. And can't you see, can't we see in so many examples inside ourselves and around us, good friends, that uh, knowledge does have some relationship to power and there's something kind of intoxicating about, you know, the world that we live in now with all our technology and, and all the data and, and the ability to find out things so rapidly and everything. And doesn't that give you kind of an edge over the people who are just living in a tent with a goat or something? It, it, it's, it's a kind of power that comes with it, but what also comes with it, does it not, is uh, pride. You know, don't you get a little high on yourself? You know, don't, don't you get that atmosphere sometimes when you're in Manhattan or when you're in, in the, at the center of it all? And, the, uh, you know, there's a certain vibe of like uh, rulers of the universe kind of, you know, like we know what's going on. Uh, and the knowledge was very important to the Lord. He had to learn that knowledge when he was young. But that pride would have been deadly to him. And the sense that Egypt had a lot of, uh, like along with that kind of dominion and power is this, is this love of self. Swedenborg divides the, the, the things that go into the human heart into just four grand categories, as you may know, dear friends. He says that there's loving the Lord, there's loving the neighbor, and those are positive loves. And then there's loving the world, and there's loving yourself. And if these things go in the right order, in the order I just mentioned, you'll be fine. There's, there's, it's not bad to have love of self as long as it gets trumped by something higher than that, and that gets trumped by love of the neighbor, and that gets trumped by love of God. But if love of self and love of the world take over, it's really bad. It's, it's very corrupting, and they will tend to get the upper hand, and they'll tend to crush or use or abuse uh, the love of the neighbor or the love of God. You know, that'll get trodden down in the way of, like, look out. You know, we're, we're busy making money or changing the world or something, but we don't have time to be nice to people or something. Um, so I'm drawn to that idea. Egypt also means the lower self, it's just our worldly self. You know, that's another meaning that it has in, in the way that Swedenborg describes it. Uh, and so there again, like you have to, to, to live in this world, we have to know things. And you can't, you know, try stopping a kid from learning something. You know, we're all born with this tremendous galloping a desire to learn, aren't we? To know, to see how things work and to play with them and fuss around and, and learn. Uh, we, we're, we're just dying to know. Nothing's more frustrating than feeling like somebody's keeping something from you or, you know, like, I want to know. What, what is it? And um, so we have that desire. And yet, if that becomes an end in itself, so we've got to go to Egypt. We have to learn things. We have to go down. We have to live in this world. In some ways, I would say that Egypt also, in a way, represents just the, the flesh, our living here in this world. You know, we, we have to go down to Egypt, but we're also called out of there into, into the spiritual world. Uh, but more important than that physical transition is our transition out of that Egyptian state. The Lord wants to call us out. And the nature of our lower selves is that as we are drawn out, we sound exactly like the children of Israel which, wait a minute, I love Egypt. I hate this. Didn't I say, you kidding me? Cucumbers, melons, hello. You know, we're, we're living out in a tent with a goat. You know, I, I don't, you know, this is no fun. Eating this stupid manna and everything. Um, so there, there's, you can get addicted to the, to the Egypt thing. And think about what the Lord went through in his life. If this has some connection with loving ourselves, above all, or love, love of the world, you know, love, love of wealth and, and love of the power of that knowledge and everything in the absence of, of spirituality. When Egypt is friendly to Joseph, in fact, uh, Swedenborg says that when Joseph was second in command in Egypt, 
Egypt had a wonderful correspondence. You know, this is like, hey, the, Joseph is like something of the Lord. Then all that knowledge, you know, it's helpful. It solves problems because you've got a famine. We've, we've got some information for you. Knowledge is, is spiritual food. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's a, a kind of food. So Egypt has abundant wealth. They, they, can, they can help you and so on. And that's why people get so increased by, by being in Egypt in these biblical stories. Um, but the time comes when that starts to get, gain the upper hand and you have to get out of there. I think this is even true. Egypt also corresponds to knowledge of Scripture. Like, isn't there a way to approach Scripture where you just, you know, you know chapter and verse type of thing and you know this and you know that, you know a million facts and everything, but you're kind of missing the compassion and the, the, real, the real heart of it, you know? And, and uh, uh, even knowledge of the Word can be in Egypt that we can get stuck in in an interesting way. Uh, the Lord wants to call us up out of there. An analogy that I've, I've talked about before in this class that has struck me is that um, it's like when you learn in school, when, like you're learning a, another language, or it's like when you're learning to play a, a musical instrument, uh, there is just a necessary uh, tedium where you, you just have to memorize these things, and you have to go over and over, you know, have to practice, play your scales, whatever it is, uh, and that's so important. You have to, there's no other way. You have to go there. You have to go through that door. And yet, if it stays there, it has no life. You know, the whole point of Amoa Masamat is that at some point you can read Latin and it turns into meaning for you. Or, or the, the, the whole point of playing those scales is so that you can sit down and music can just come pouring out. Uh, and that's when you, when you leave Egypt and go to something higher. Uh, we have to go down. We have to come back. Egypt also corresponds to pleasure. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And that's certainly what the people are complaining about, right? It's the pleasures of Egypt that they feel deprived of. You know, that they, they feel, wait a minute, you know, the amount of pleasure in my life has gone down because Egypt is pleasurable and then there's a sense of deprivation as you're moving out in the direction of Israel. Even though when you get up there to the Holy Land, it'll be uh, like a land flowing with milk and honey. But there is some deprivation along the way. Um, and think about the Lord, how he, uh, if he was ever, think about those temptations when he's in the wilderness early on, and doesn't that Satan, that evil spirit, try to tempt him on the basis of love of the world and, and power? Aren't those some of the issues? He said, I'll give you the whole world, or I'll give you know, this, this power over if you bow down and worship me. And, and he, won't, he won't buy it. He just quotes scripture back. Um, and, and he doesn't succumb to that temptation. Uh, I think there may have been a time when he was younger when that might have been tempting in a different way. You know, because of what Swedenborg says, that he wanted to stay in that. There was a time when, you know, there was an attraction to that. Like, hey, I'm really getting the hang of this, and I know this, and this is, this is power, and, and so on. Uh, but boy, the Lord got so clear about worldly power and wealth, didn't he? Wow. You know, you, I, I don't see him fundraising, you know. I, I don't see him, uh, you know, he's, he's itinerant, homeless. He really doesn't seem to care about all that. When he's talking to Pontius Pilate, Pilate says, don't you know I have power over you? And he says, you would have no power unless it came from heaven. You know, he's just not intoxicated by sitting there with Pontius Pilate. You know, he's not taken with it because he left Egypt, you know. He didn't buy into the Egyptian thing. You can't hook him with wealth. You can't hook him with power and all that stuff. He, he's immune to all that, which is why people keep accusing him of being no respecter of persons. You know, what they really mean is you don't, you know, what does he say about that? You're like children in the marketplace who play a happy song and say, hey, I played a happy song and you didn't dance. I played a sad song and you didn't cry. 
uh, you know, people who want to influence others and get them to, to be the way they are. The Lord was not playing that game. There was something more important. He had left all that behind and went to something spiritual that was so important. And um, so think about what we read there about those stories that as people were coming up, they came into the presence of the Lord. It said that literally right in that passage that we read. And the Lord was drawing them with the bands of love. That's how, that's how he drew them up out of Egypt, with the bands of love. And it says he took their yoke off. That thing becomes a yoke. It becomes something that's just like dominating your life or something. And, and the Lord wants to take that off. Even knowledge itself, isn't it true as, as we age, good friends, that you have these senior moments and little brownouts and, and so on. And um, uh, it seems to be important that the, it's not about that anymore, you know. Uh, there's something else. The Lord's just trying to take us out of Egypt. It's love. He wants to take us in a good direction. And there's always something in us that kind of says, uh, wait a minute, I liked being on top of all this stuff. I liked remembering why I came into this store, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the Lord has something else in mind, you know, for us to be open to that realm of the Spirit, to be humbler. These tents are very good. You know, a tent is a good thing, and a goat is, is a good, like these are good spiritual things, the sheep and the goats and the tent and all that. That's a good state. That's a very high heavenly state, like the state that we had when we were little children, of just the Lord just flowing in and taking care of us. And it's not about our own power and that we know this and we know that. And the knowledge is, is a wonderful thing, but it's supposed to serve. And if it's not serving, then the Lord's got to bring you up out of there. It has to be transformed. And so there are certain kinds of knowledge, like the knowledge of scales or like the knowledge of, you know, the rudiments of grammar in a language that, that you have to learn, but you have to be brought up out of that for it to become a living thing. The Lord takes our yoke off. Uh, he gets us out of that slavery. So we have to go to Egypt, uh, but we also do have to be willing to leave. Try to minimize the complaining um, and, and head for the Holy Land because the, real, the Lord really does have a land of milk and honey that he wishes to give us. And all those different biblical characters represent that journey, going down, getting strengthened. But then you have to come back. Isn't life so much this way uh, that there's a time when it's so important, like that business, you know, a time to sow and a time to reap and all that. Isn't it so important that there's a time uh, to go be strengthened in all that, to get educated, to... To, to learn uh, the literal sense of the word or to learn what we need to know in order to, to you know, have some impact in this world. Um, but then don't be surprised when the Lord sends Moses to try to take us out of there because he has more in mind for us. And it's so beautiful to worship the Lord, isn't it? And to see how he was the perfect human being. We all get hooked by this junk and we all have our baggage and everything. But the Lord did it so cleanly. He just walked right out of Egypt and he just, uh, he just let that go. Thank you, good friends, for your attention and support. Shall we close with a prayer? <clears throat> Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Thank you, Lord, for showing us the way. Thank you for the depth of your word, that even in a few verses about going to Egypt and coming back, there's so much, so much unfathomable depth. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us along. We often feel like we are wandering in the wilderness or stuck in Egypt or not sure what's going on. We thank you, Lord, for knowing the game plan and knowing the destination, and knowing how to lead us forward. We pray for that willing heart to follow you. 
our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Repentance is one good way to leave Egypt.